right, well, hey, in the last um, weeks, we've been studying Ezra and Nehemiah, as most or all of you know, and we are in our last day of that sermon series uh, of studying this one scroll that we know as two books, right? I'm not going to quiz you. Um, <laughs> but uh, we've been talking uh, a lot about Ezra and Nehemiah and the background of this, right? And the, and the different iterations of leadership um, and the aspects of that leadership that was good and the aspects of that leadership that was failed leadership and all the iterations throughout Scripture, the narrative of Scripture, right, that show us as God's people attempting to accomplish His law and utterly failing in our own strength. Um, and so we know that in Ezra and Nehemiah's day, this was not the, the promise of the Messiah, the coming of his kingdom, and the temple in its, in its fullest form or lasting form would not be fulfilled in Ezra and Nehemiah's day. But we want to recap their leadership. We want to see where and how was it fulfilled, and what does that mean for us today? And there's a sense in which that's what we're practicing every week. <laughs> We're practicing the now and not yet of the kingdom. And what does it look like to live into this in this most unique era in history? Um, and so um, if you can look on the screen or turn in your Bibles or on your phones with me to Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 16 and 17, and then jumping ahead to 31 through 34. Um, it's on the screen, as I mentioned. If you could stand in honor of God's word with me. This morning, let's read God's word out loud together. The man who hates and divorces his... Oh, this is the wrong passage. Uh, <laughs> I will reference this passage. Um, you're like, oh, that's a harsh one. Um, yeah, I don't know if you have Jeremiah. Okay, cool. I will just read it, and we could stay standing in honor of God's Word. I have it right here in my notes. This is what the Lord says. Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord. They will return from the land of the enemy. So there is hope for your descendants, declares the Lord. Your children will return to their own land. The days, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. You can be seated. Amen. And so there's a part of this prophecy which was before Israel is exiled into Babylon. There's a part of this prophecy that comes to pass in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. They would return to their land um, and they would rebuild the temple. 
And so just to rehearse a brief summary, just one more time, of what led to these days and events in Ezra and Nehemiah, um, the Lord called Abraham and from him formed the nation Israel. And from there, this nation Israel went into captivity under oppression by Egypt. And after 400 years in oppression, the Lord raises up Moses to deliver them out of oppression. And for 40 years, they're in a wilderness, but then they enter into a land that God promised them in fulfillment of God's word. During their time in that land, they establish kings, many of whom are wicked. And though prophets warn these kings against oppression of the poor and other acts of wickedness, the kings and the people of God continue to rebel. And so God sends them into exile. They're in exile for 70 years. And where we find ourselves here in this passage is they are returning from exile with the blessing of those who rule over them to rebuild the temple, to reestablish the law, and to gather as God's people. And so uh, here we are in Ezra and Nehemiah's day, and the first person that God raises up to rebuild the temple is Zerubbabel. And I'm just going to briefly recap this one more time for us, this first iteration of leadership. And Zerubbabel comes into the land and rebuilds the temple. And the Haggai and Zechariah, uh, prophets in his day, um, affirm this. They say, this man is anointed. Uh, to come and rebuild the temple. Uh, Zerubbabel obeys God's word and rebuilds it and establishes it as he returns from Jerusalem. The foreign king, um, he gives him supplies and uh, lets him go. So God's favor is on Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel is obedient to God's word, and in that we see success in leadership, right? But it's worth noting that the context here, as they return from exile, is he comes back to utter rubble, right? He rebuilds this temple, and they, be, and they go to dedicate the temple. And when they do, God's glory does not come on them as they rededicate this temple and imitate or rehearse what Solomon did in the dedication of the first temple. But you have to understand that when Solomon dedicated the first temple and God's glory came in power, the context was an established kingdom in a promised land. And beyond that, 40 years of day and night worship among God's people. 40 years. David, Solomon's father, had established this among God's people. And how many of you know that God, in the deepest longing of who He is and His heart's desire, he wants to dwell among his people. This isn't just true of what, he's, of, of, uh, what he does or what, you know, an affinity that he has or a hobby, right? This is rooted in his very nature. His name is God with us. And so he longs for us to be the resting place that he identifies us as, right? And so David practiced this. David created this culture patterned after heaven. It wasn't perfect. They were flawed people, but they gathered and worshiped day and night. It was in this context of the dedication of the first temple that God's glory falls. So fast forward back to Zerubbabel, right? The context is they're just now, there's not even a sense of repentance really in terms of the hearts of the people 
much less 40 years of day and night worship. And God's glory doesn't come because they're not in a place to host his presence, really. It's not that we earn that place, but there's a sense in which that is there's, um, where we um, receive or make room for him to come. And, and, and they weren't in touch with that yet. And so we see that in Zerubbabel's day. But we can have compassion and, and sympathy towards Zerubbabel, right? I mean, look at the, the situation he was put in. As much as we could see, he was faithful, but the context was a much harder start than Solomon's in, in the first temple. And so uh, I can relate to this, having grown up, you know, in church environments where the presence of God, it wasn't just that he wasn't felt, it's that he wasn't necessarily welcome or valued by way of experiencing him, uh, the fellowship with the Holy Spirit. And so it wasn't that the Holy Spirit wasn't believed in, but, you know, it was just this sense of, uh, of really just not a sense. It was just practicing or imitating these rote rituals more so. And uh, I can relate to this uh, years ago in my own leadership, where I was, I was a leader. I was an elder in the church, and this was not... Um, God's manifest presence among us was not a priority. In fact, there wasn't even language for that uh, a long time ago for what was missing or who was missing among us. Now, God was with us in his omnipresence, and God was just as faithful then as he is today, right? But there was a process of God leading us into repentance and welcoming his presence among us. But I can have sympathy for Zerubbabel, and on a personal level, relate to him, um, you know, and we know the good news is we can always repent and always come to God and in humility and pray, and he's quick to forgive us our sins, remember them no more, and dwell among us in a spatial way, in a special way, amen. And so, um, decades later, Ezra comes on the scene. The temple has been dedicated. It's there. And he wants to bring and reestablish the law amongst the people. And Ezra does this and exhibits obedience again to step into this leadership call. However, he misinterprets the scriptures and misses the heart of God. And he says, if you remember, Brooke and Mary talked about this, that he commands that those who intermarried that they divorce and that their families be separated. You can put that on the screen now, Tim. <laughs> the man, this is what Malachi, a contemporary prophet in Ezra's day, said, The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. Jesus also said, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but this was not the way in the beginning. In other words, Jesus is saying, when I instituted marriage, the Lord says, what I brought together, let no man separate, right? That's the heart of God. And Ezra misinterpreted this, causing division. We see God's true heart at the work, at his work in the cross, right? Where he abolished the hostility wall that divides people and and in so doing, brings us back together in unity. But speaking of wall, Nehemiah comes on the scene a bit later. 
And in his iteration of leadership, he has a vision to rebuild a wall, right? And as he rebuilds the wall, we see Nehemiah, good elements of leadership, a, a zeal to do God's will. He brings social reform for the poor. And yet, his intent, at least in part, in building this wall is to keep foreigners out. And so we see yet again misinterpreting God's heart, missing God's heart in this, right? Because even in God's call to Abraham, the call was that through Abraham, all nations would be blessed, not just the nation of Israel, right? And that was what we see of God's heart in the beginning. What we see of God's heart in the end is that all nations will be gathered around his throne, right? And so we know that Nehemiah is missing this. But I can be compassionate, sympathetic toward Nehemiah as I preach this morning on what Martin Luther King Jr. called the most segregated hour every week in America, right? And so we are still found wanting in our leadership here in our context in some regards. And I own that as failed leadership as a, as a pastor in Christ church. I own that as something that I aspire to and work toward with my brothers and sisters, you all, and other church leaders to correct. And so we can relate to the failures, not just critique them, right? And so we also see in Ezra and Nehemiah that they then lastly come together to practice or stage, if you will, a revival. And so during the Feast of Booths, they gather the people. The people say, Ezra, read us the law. And for six hours, they listen attentively. God is breaking through. They're weeping, many of them. And then all of a sudden, Ezra, Nehemiah, and the leaders, rather than preferring their contrition, cuts it off. They cut it off, and they say, no, we're supposed to be joyful. Go home, celebrate, and eat. And there was a sense in which they missed what is the beginning of revival, a heart of repentance, a broken and contrite heart, if you will, as John referenced in worship earlier. And so we see a sense of revival come in Nehemiah chapter 12, but then in Nehemiah 13, we see that everything seems to be in disarray again regarding the wall and the temple and the law and, and people desecrating the Sabbath and, and uh, the people are essentially living in utter failure and falling far short of what God wants for them. And so... In that time, then, between Ezra and Nehemiah and Jesus' coming is a 400-year period. And sure enough, where God's presence lacks, we tend to fill it with laws. Where God's presence lacks, we tend to fill it with laws. Today, you'll see where God's presence lacks, the church will, in its own zeal or its, its own good, maybe even good intentions, will fill things with new rules. You know, whether it's about dress or music or whatever it might be, or policy. And um, we see during this intertestament period between the Old and the New Testament, this foreign, that Judaism just fills the law of God with new laws that are not of God, but of man. And Jesus addresses these time and time again when he comes on the scene in the Gospels. 
And so the Messiah, his kingdom, and the new temple were not fulfilled in Ezra and Nehemiah, but they were fulfilled in Jesus, right? Only through the new covenant in Jesus' blood could the Messiah, the temple, and the kingdom of God be fully realized. And so we see that as the people are in disarray in Nehemiah's day, Nehemiah is telling them, try harder, stop doing this, do this instead. And we know that at the heart today and back then, that the only way that we can live right is through a transformed heart by the power of the Holy Spirit through Jesus' finished work at the cross. Amen. It's not from trying harder. It's not from a sense of moralism. It's uh, not from doing this or wearing this and not doing the other. It's from a transformed heart. And it's only through the new covenant in Christ's blood. If Zerubbabel built the second temple, Jesus makes a better Zerubbabel. Because as the College of Prayer, when I was in Pakistan, called, um, called it, they said the, that the greatest building project today is Jesus Christ building his church. And the church, brothers and sisters, is the new temple. And the church is not just a church. The church that Jesus is building, that Jesus is building, is a praying church. It's a house of prayer that includes all nations. Amen? And if Jesus, or if uh, Ezra brought us the law, then Jesus makes a better Ezra because he fulfilled the law. And this passage that we read in Jeremiah says that he writes the law on our hearts and minds. How does he do that? But he gives us his Holy Spirit to indwell us by whom we have the mind of Christ, by whom we have the power for holy and free living. Do you know that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And where is the Spirit of the Lord but in His people? The truth is, we're free. And if there's any part of our lives where we say, well, I'm not free here, then we're living beneath our identity in Christ and according to a lie. And that lie is usually close, close by to it is a wound. And so I just want to encourage you to pay attention to where you don't feel so free and know that God doesn't condemn you in that place, but offers you truth to it to set you free. Because the reality is, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And therefore, you who have the Spirit have the mind of Christ and are free. And so we don't call our experience truth because it's what we've experienced or haven't yet experienced, right? His Word is truth. And we need to live up to what we've attained. <laughs> That's our responsibility, right? Um, to lean in to what, we ha what Christ has fulfilled for us. Well, if Nehemiah had a vision to build a wall, Jesus makes a better Nehemiah. Because Jesus, again, tore down the hostility wall that divided race, ethnicity, class, generations, gender... And he brought us together under one covenant as one family of God, as one bride for whom he will return as our bridegroom. So if the new covenant was fulfilled in Jesus 2,000 years ago, 
Why then is today, is this hour each week still the most segregated time in America? If Jesus fulfilled the new covenant 2,000 years ago, why do we still identify with failed leadership in the church? If Jesus fulfilled the, two covenant, the new covenant 2,000 years ago, the promise of the Messiah, the coming of his kingdom, as well as the new temple, his church, why do we still see actions that reinforce the oppression of the most vulnerable among us? Why are there still hurts and slights among us? Brothers and sisters, I contend because of this era we live in that the kingdom is now and it's not yet. It's the most unique era in human history. There, will be, there was none like it before. And there's been none like it since Jesus died, rose, and ascended into heaven. Because between his resurrection and his second coming, his return, we live in an era where the kingdom is now and it is not yet. And so, from slights to the blood of our sins in the soil of our land, we know of those not yet places all too well, right? And yet, the Bible says we have weapons and food that the world knows nothing about. You see, we have the privilege and the power of God to bring the kingdom and make right what is wrong now as it is in heaven. And that's what makes this time so unique, right? is that Jesus fulfilled this utterly. And just as I talked about personal freedom a moment ago, this is true in our systems too, that we do the work of the kingdom, the gospel, the good news for the bad news of the things that are not yet, right? And we have the power of God inside us to do that together. And so in Pakistan, I saw and heard of not yet places of the kingdom of God. I heard and saw the kingdom of darkness pervading in Pakistan. And one example of that was that on a job application, you have to put your religious affiliation and you can only get lower level jobs if you're a Christian. And so they're, they're clearly discriminated against overtly, right? Worse than that, you can be killed as a Christian in Pakistan without any recourse. So anytime you can be killed, and because you're a Christian, most likely the person will not even face a trial or charges against them. Guys, this is the not yet of the kingdom. But I'm here today to testify that the kingdom of God is forcefully advancing in Pakistan. And I'd like you to watch this video Last night in the mayor town, we were preaching and uh, Brother John and me was praying about a guy who was blind and can, uh, could not see for many years. But uh, with the grace of God, he was joyful and very happy to see with his own eyes. When, uh, when we prayed and God showed his mercy on him and he can now see see the color and nature the God made for his people to see the beauty of the world. He, he was very happy at this moment. I am glad he could see now. Had you met him before? Yes, I have met him 
about uh, four to five times in the male dog, but he couldn't see. His eyes were already gone with the light. When the sun comes, he is totally blind. But now the grace of God, he can see with his own eyes very goodly. Wow, praise God. And, and did he come to salvation last night? Yes. He, and he was also a Muslim. Now he is converted to Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Praise God. Amen. Okay, so if you caught that in Leon's uh, best English, that this man was physically blind and could now see uh, through healing prayer, the laying on of hands. And he also then came to Christ um, uh, from being a, a Muslim. And so, um, praise God. Amen. And so, God's kingdom is advancing. If you can put up the next picture, Tim. Um, when we were in Pakistan, uh, we also, this is the, we, we um, taught this campus of the College of Prayer to these pastors, leaders, and their wives, and saw a major breakthrough, particularly related to the power of forgiveness. Just sincerely not knowing, um, you know, much about that, uh, many of them, and... Um, and uh, we just saw the kingdom break in. Where the in the not yet places of the hearts of Christ's church, God's kingdom was breaking in. And at um, and if you can go to the next picture, uh, we also ministered to this group of about a hundred first and second year seminary students in Pakistan. Um, mostly younger adults. And the big thing here was the Father's love. Uh, we just saw God, in, in essence, what I spoke to earlier during worship, the Lord reparenting people, um, just ministering to deep wounds in people's hearts, and just seeing these young adult women and men just weeping as the Lord encountered them and brought breakthrough to them. Uh, it was just such a beautiful picture. Uh, we saw a whole Muslim family come to Christ as well. Uh, I might have a picture of that. I'm not sure. Yeah, this family, uh, these three women and this man uh, came to Christ at, they call it a convention. We might call it like a tent revival or a, a night service for healing. And, and so, brothers and sisters, um, the kingdom of God is now and not yet in Pakistan, right? <laughs> God is ministering uh, his light in the darkest places. And what an honor of my life to serve uh, the persecuted church. Uh, in Pakistan, and I trust, as I as I said and thought before I left, that they have more to give to me um, that I'm bringing home with me than I had to give to them. Amen. <laughs> so I look forward to what that means for us in the days ahead. Of course, that's strategic of the Lord. But when I came home, I heard stories of God's kingdom breaking in here in our body. Uh, more than one story of like deep inner healing and God meeting people in their memories. And, um, and I'm just reminded that God is sweeping us into this end times revival as his praying church, right? Of people who hear from God, value his presence, do what he says, and receive and release his, his revelation and intercession and in his kingdom work. And so... Um, I'm so encouraged about the now places of God's kingdom, that there are these now places growing among us. And in this now and not yet era, I just want to close by talking about two areas. Um, one is that we are witnesses, that we are witnesses. We are those who see and hear, and we show and tell what we see and hear. And the Bible says, though, 
um, not just to be witnesses, but that we'll have power to be witnesses and to wait for the power to be witnesses. And when the power of God comes upon you, you'll be witnesses to those here, there, and everywhere. And I just contend, brothers and sisters, and remind us that there's a pattern of our discipleship found in this. That we continue to be witnesses in this up, in, and out rhythm that Christine spoke to two weeks ago here. This is the way, as disciples of Jesus, when we say up, in, and out, I mean worship of God, our relationships with each other, and out on mission, we practice up, in, and out in its different forms and expressions and organizations and missional communities to remain witnesses and to keep Watch. You know, the Bible says, um, and this is on the screen as well, I think, Tim. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you don't expect. Therefore, stay awake, for you don't know on what day your Lord is coming. And the next one. Don't neglect meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another, and all the more that you see the day drawing near. The day. The day refers to Christ's return, right? The day refers to Christ's return. And until he returns, may we walk in the pattern of Jesus as witnesses. What do I mean? I mean seeing and hearing him in an up expression. On Monday, we were worshiping as a staff together. And God's presence came so near And I was just experiencing him and his glory. And I I had this vision of him. And it it continued to grow in intensity for a time. And the way I would express it in a word is passion, right? It's this encounter of Jesus' beauty and his holiness. And then, conversely, this ache and longing to know him fully and be with him forever, right? (laughs) So there's this now and not yet even to good experiences, but... The thing I want to highlight about that experience is not what happened to me as much as we made room for it. We prioritized worship and prayer. We said we're going to come into God's presence and practice the up of discipleship. And who knows how God's going to meet us. But however He meets us, it's going to be good. And sometimes I don't feel anything. But that's okay because we know the truth is God is drawing near to us. And when we make room... We are keeping watch as witnesses. We are keeping watch as witnesses as we practice revival. One way we do that in, in, in an in way, right, is discipleship where we experience God's manifest presence through one another. And so grounded and deeper life groups and missional communities are where we experience God in and through one another, whether it's an affirming word to one another, right? Or someone sharing their testimony or through the laying on of hands and praying for one another. We are experiencing Christ, the now of his kingdom, as witnesses because we have postured, we've positioned ourselves to do so. And this is how we keep watch as a community of believers this side of heaven. This is how we practice the now of the kingdom, making room for it to invade where it has not yet come to make things right, right? And so the last thing I want to reference is Christ. Oh, and then how about the out? We see this in different expressions, like outdoor immersion, where they minister to vets and bring hope to people, and they practice through these activities and relationship and evangelism. 
this rhythm toward people to give them hope. Right? And we see this in other expressions like Aliquippa Impact where kids experience opportunities in relationships they may not otherwise have. Right? These are out expressions of the kingdom of God and how we bear witness to the name of the Lord and how we keep watch as witnesses as we practice this mission of Christ. Beloved. Beloved is a community of women as diverse as its zip code. Becoming a beloved community after its namesake from Scripture, right? This is who we are. We're the beloved of Christ. And we're called out to bring more people into the kingdom of God, right? And so we create these spaces through the dreams that Caroline mentioned to talk to John or our staff about these dreams that God's put in our heart to reach those who have not yet experienced Christ's kingdom. Well, I want to just close. If, John, you can come up and play. And this, this last, the second thing I want to highlight and to close with is Christ's return. You know, in the early church, they would often say Maranatha, which in its essence would mean, means um, the Lord has come, the Lord is coming, so come. The Lord has come, the Lord is coming, so come. And so in communion, I think we practice the Lord has come, Right? And we say, we remember and proclaim his death until he comes again. And so what, the way we rehearse that is the Lord has come is in communion. Where we remember what he's done on the cross. When we remember that everything was fulfilled by Christ 2,000 years ago. And that we live into that remembering that he has come. But also the Lord is coming. And guys, the reason we stay awake and we keep awake as witnesses in up, in, and out, and we practice revival on this side of heaven is because of our hope in the full redemption plan of Christ that when He returns one day in His fullness and we know Him fully, right? All things will be made right, right? And lastly, the Lord, or so come... And when we say, so come, we mean two things, right? We mean, come to the not yet places. And we mean, come fully, Lord. And so, Maranatha, the Lord has come, the Lord is coming. So come. The cry of our hearts is so come that we would know you fully. But until that day, come and make right what's wrong. Right? Amen.